Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, LA Opera Connect's director, Andrea Fuentes, interviews composer Nathan Wong, author and librettist Lisa C., and director Jennifer Chang regarding On Gold Mountain, an opera based on Lisa C.'s book of the same title. See On Gold Mountain, May 5th through 15th, in the newly expanded Chinese Garden at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Tickets are available now only at the Huntington's website, Huntington.org. Hi, I'm Jennifer Chang. I'm the director of On Gold Mountain. And what that means is I create the stage pictures and coordinate with the designers um, what the look of the opera will be, supporting the music and the storytelling overall um, that Lisa and Nathan have set forth through the libretto and the score. So I wrote the original book on Gold Mountain, which tells the story of the Chinese in America through the eyes of my own family. For the opera, we've really focused on the love story between my great-grandparents, Fang Si and Tai Si Pruitt. And I wrote the libretto. (laughs) Great. Well, I'm the composer of On Gold Mountain. Very, very happy to have done that 20 years ago. Unlike 20 years ago, I get to play conductor this time. In that role, I will be, in fact, I've already been working with the orchestra and looking very, very forward to this coming week where I'll have a chance to work with the singers and see everything come together from a musical standpoint. And so Jennifer is the director and Lisa as the librettist. I have the responsibility of trying to bring the music to the full, big highlight of what it can be. And so I'm in charge of making the music come through from a vocal standpoint, as well as the orchestra. Very, very excited to do so. This was a book. Can you tell us a little bit about how you began compiling information? What what raised your interest in this particular story and how that began? I grew up spending a lot of time with my grandparents in our family store in Chinatown, where they worked with my great aunts and uncles. At the end of the day, they would tell these wonderful stories. They'd all gather together to have drinks and, you know, snacks. And they would tell these wonderful stories about my great-grandfather and how he came here as a boy of 14, how he did a lot of the jobs immigrants do today. Kind of fantastical stories, some of them, you know, how he lived to be 100 years old. He had two wives, 12 children was the first Chinese in America to own an automobile, used to sell tickets to see his stuffed mermaid. I mean, these just crazy, crazy stories. And these were wonderful, not only to me, but to many people who over a hundred years or so had approached the family to do a book or a magazine article or even a film script. And always my family had said, no, I think there were two reasons for that. On the one side, I think they had a lot of arrogance, you know, like, oh, why should we participate in your story? your project. And on the other side, a lot of shame and embarrassment because so much of what they did was either borderline illegal or full on out there illegal. And things sort of you know, stayed that way for about a hundred years. And then I guess it would have to be probably something like 30 years ago, a woman called me and wanted to include our family in a book she was doing on prominent Chinese American families. I called my great aunt, and as usual, she said, we don't participate in things like that. Two years later, on the eve of her 80th birthday, that book came out. 
So I was able to get an advance copy. Wait, there was a big banquet in Chinatown, and I, you know, I gave my great aunt this book. The next day, her daughter called and said, my mom realizes she made a mistake. Why don't you come over and she'll tell you some stories? And that first day, I heard things I'd never heard before. My great-grandfather didn't have two wives. He actually had four. And kind of in passing, she mentioned a kidnapping. And I had never heard of kidnapping before. So that's actually how it started. And originally, I thought, well, this could be one of those inserts you put into a Christmas card. You know, one page. You know, usually it's like Johnny played soccer and we went on vacation to the Grand Canyon. But no, I thought I can get all the names, all the dates, all the places, and I'll send it to everyone in the family. And clearly things got out of hand. And so over the next five years, I interviewed friends, family, business associates, enemies. I went to the National Archive and found all kinds of material there, um, interrogations, boarding passes, cell certificates, photographs of my family. I went to where my great-grandmother was from, where my grandmother was from, and of course, back to the home village. In doing all that, I was able to look at this larger Chinese-American history, but again, through the eyes of one family as they moved through it. And what we all know, of course, is that history is something that happens to real people. I mean, we learn it usually like the front line of history of wars and generals and dates and presidents and things like that. But if you take one step back, who's there? It's families. And they're experiencing that history every step of the way. So while this is very much focused on my own family, I think any American family would connect to it. You don't have to have a Chinese-American background because we all had people in our families who were brave enough, scared enough, crazy enough to leave their home country to come. And we share, again, in that immigrant Nathan, one of the things that you had addressed was the way that you viewed the sort of combining of different Western and Eastern elements to the music and to the storytelling and and how that related to the characters. How were you brought into this project and how was it described to you and what sort of sold you on it and how did you conceive of the music when you first sat down to think about it 20 years ago? (laughs) You say it correctly, 20 years ago, you can imagine as a television and film composer who had been working on Jackie Chan movies and who'd been kind of concentrating on overseas work with Chinese cinema, all of a sudden I get a call from LA Opera saying, would you be interested in writing an opera that would be produced by LA Opera about a Chinese American family? And who Chinese American would be in their right minds not to want to do that? I mean, given that kind of opportunity with LA Opera being one of the biggest reputable opera companies there is, to be able to have that opportunity to sit down and write music and to challenge oneself to come up with writing as beautiful a music as I could to a story about a Chinese American, which basically hits home. So as soon as I got that call, I think Lisa, we got together here at my house 20 some odd years ago, and she told me basically the background of it. And I immediately went After that meeting, I got the book and I started reading it. Now, after I read it, and this is something I don't think I ever told you, Lisa, shortly after that, I think you gave me the libretto. And what I wanted to try to do in my conscious mind is to forget about the novel. And I only wanted to concentrate on the libretto because I thought as a composer, 
it's very important to highlight the libretto. You only have, what, an hour and a half or 75 minutes to bring music into this opera. I don't want to fill myself up with a backstory that I know because of the novel and present something to an audience that's sitting there listening to the words and that's being presented at that time. So it needs to be fresh and it needs to have that kind of spontaneity in terms of my music writing. So I wanted to not think about the novel itself, not think about the book itself, but about the libretto. That's how I tried to approach it. And I thought that it was really a great challenge for a Chinese American because here I'm given a great opportunity to dig back into my heritage and to listen to Chinese music, bring that into it. And obviously it's set here in Los Angeles and to bring out the Western music. So it was, it was a great opportunity for me. Things really haven't changed that much in terms of the opera because I listened back to it. And when we were told that the opera is going to be presented at the Huntington again, I thought, well, let me take a look at what I can do. I listened to it and I go, you know what? I didn't do too badly the first time. So let me just go ahead and let it, let it be what it is. And there are a little couple changes here and there, but um, overall, I'm just so pleased with what we came up with. And I'm just so happy to seriously be part of this project. Can you imagine a composer being able to hear that his or her opera is going to be presented again with an LA opera producing it? That, that just, to me, is just unbelievable. It's, it's, like, it's like being five-year-old saying, okay, you get, to go to, you get to go to Disneyland, you know, tomorrow. And that's the kind of excitement I had 20 years ago. And then all of a sudden saying, okay, you get to go to Disneyland, the big Disneyland, again, with a different kind of visual, with a wonderful director who's been brought into this particular project. I mean, it, I get to relive the dream all over again. So that's how I kind of see it. That's wonderful. Thank you. Jennifer, I would love to ask you, this production was put on 20 years ago. First of all, what were you doing 20 years ago? I was just getting out of undergrad, <laughs> living in New York City, very much a baby actor. <laughs> That's what I was doing 20 years ago. <laughs> and were you acting on the stage or in, um, mm -hmm. in screen productions or uh, both? Yeah, primarily on the stage. And then um, this is before I went to grad school, but I will jump ahead and say that actually I first met Nathan right after I graduated from grad school. Nathan had written the music to the Joy Luck Club, the play that was put on by East West Players. And that at the time was, I think, one of their best selling shows ever. So that's how I first met Nathan. And I was the person in the show who played the music that people sang to. Do you remember that, Nathan? I, I, I do. <laughs> I have very fond memories of uh, when we got when we actually got together and it was just really a lot of fun. And yes, that's the actual context of how I got to know Jennifer as an actress. I, I, I had to as a director, our <laughs> boss. <laughs> so and I had to play the recorder, which in the beginning was not good, but by the end of it, Emily Kuroda had said, Jennifer, that <laughs> that recorder is sounding really amazing. <laughs> um, so that was our first interaction, the iteration of Nathan and Jennifer's <laughs> collaboration. And then fast forward, I really, I feel like very much homegrown in Los Angeles in terms of my directing career, which found me. I 
went to grad school to be an actor and then found that I had a knack for directing, which did start in grad school and was mentored by many wonderful directors, including Darko Tresniak, who's directed at LA Opera several times. You know, when I got the call by Stacy to ask if I was interested, and I said, absolutely, I'm interested. Because as Nathan was saying, you know, how often is there an opportunity to tell not just a Chinese story, but a Chinese American story and a Chinese American story in the form of opera. I mean, how special is that? Yes, the answer was yes. <laughs> and um, with Nathan, it was yes. And then with Lisa, having read the book, you know, it was absolutely. I had known of the book. I hadn't read it yet, but I'd known of the book. And in fact, I directed a show, an immersive show at the Japanese American National Museum that was connected to a Smithsonian exhibit. And the title of the piece was Our American Voice. And in it, in the Smithsonian photo exhibit, was a photo of Fangxi, actually, when I look back at the images of that exhibit. So there are these connections, and I guess the wind has blown the three of us together here for this collaboration. That's awesome. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you had worked together before, and that's so cool. And so would you be able to tell us how you knew that like directing was the right thing for you? I, I don't know that I knew at the time. I think as a soft-spoken, petite, Asian-American woman, in terms of representation, I'd never known that this was a position that I could have, right? Like I'd seen people act, I'd seen all sorts of various storytelling. Um, I tried all sorts of things. I assisted a costume designer, I tried stage management. And when I say directing found me, it was really by accident that I had directed in grad school as part of some class exercises. And there was there were a couple of professors actually who sort of reached out from across the aisle and said, you know what, you would actually be really good at this. You have a knack for this. I didn't quite believe them at the time because I didn't know what exactly they meant. <laughs> I think I just kept saying yes when the opportunity arose and it kept leading to the next thing and the next thing and people seeing my work, the notoriety of it, I guess, spreading word of mouth really was how. Um, so many of my jobs came about. At a certain point, there was a bit of a glass ceiling where, oh, is this really a thing that, you know, Jennifer Chang, the actor, is doing? Is she really a director? I applied for a fellowship, the Drama League, that I don't know that I changed in terms of who I was as an artist or my perspective or the things that I wanted to do. But doing that fellowship felt like it reflected back to me the skills that I had and the aptitude I had for it. And so in a way that was sort of like permission, you can go do this and be really good at it. And I think part of me too felt like, oh, there hasn't really been a lot of people who look like me who do this, who even do it the way that I do it. You know, I, I think when you think of a director or a theater director or an opera director, I think people have images of what that is like and what that sounds like and moves like through the world. And I <laughs> would venture a guess that that's very much not like me, but I've had enough people observe me in a room or observe me in a process and talk about how, what a very quick and profound way I have of moving through the work and with the work 
kind of surprisingly to people because there's such an expectation that there would be somebody who occupies space in a certain way. And if I'm not doing that, how am I possibly accomplishing the work that I am? But I think it is in that way revolutionary and a sort of activism to take up space in leadership to demonstrate that, oh, there are all sorts of forms of leadership and all sorts of ways of being able to corral a lot of people and seemingly organizing chaos <laughs> into something beautiful. Can you tell me about the challenges of mounting this opera, but just in general, putting on something of this scale? LA Opera approached me, you know, it is a little more than 20 years ago, I think. It was with this idea of creating something where you had professional singers, you had some professional musicians from the, or the LA Opera Orchestra, but that everybody else really came from the community. And that meant student voice students, that meant uh, music students, that meant a chorus from the community. That also meant that they were asking me to write for a lot of different people so that we could bring in more people. And especially for the young professionals who still didn't have a lot of credits, might still be in graduate school, for example, that this was giving them an opportunity, just as it's been exciting for me to work with LA Opera and, and for Nathan as well and, and Jennifer, that when you're starting out to have that kind of an opportunity, but then also to even have people purely, purely from the community. But, you know, that sort of addresses why there's so many, <laughs> so many roles. You might not have man one, man two, man three, and man four. You might just have one person. There were five children. There were four wives. So the story in itself has a lot of people. But instead of having them come to me and, and to Nathan and saying, you know, could you narrow it down, slim it down? So instead of five children, there are only two. And instead of four wives, there are only two. And all of those kinds of things that could have tightened up the number of people in the cast. It was a way to, and then, you know, I think this does go back to what Jennifer was saying, was giving opportunities to young performers who may not have had this kind of opportunity before. Can I also just jump in and also add, we've been emphasizing the young in terms of our students, and that's absolutely true because I've been working with students as young as ninth graders, so you can imagine. But also, don't forget that we have some 70-year-olds in our community choir, and they were, in fact, involved in our production prior to this 20 years ago. So they are coming back. I've had the opportunity to give a lot of lectures in, in China and also here, but especially when I go to China, it's so interesting to see these students literally listen to every single word you're, you know, they are on the edge of their seats. And I see that same kind of excitement, that same kind of curiosity with the rehearsals that we've been doing for three weeks now, especially our older generation women. They are just so happy to be there and to be part of this community because I think Lisa's story really speaks to them. They are basically from China, not necessarily from China, but from Taiwan and also Hong Kong, from the East. And they, I think, can really relate. When they heard that we were doing this again, they immediately jumped in and said, we want to be part of this. But also addressing the younger generation, our high schoolers are very, very excited as well. 
And I'm just so happy to be in front of them. I just can't wait for this next week to happen because all the parts start coming in together. It's sort of like seeing a jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces just kind of start coming in. And that's very, very exciting for me as the composer, as the conductor, as the rehearsal pianist, to be able to get together with these uh, vocalists, the LA opera, you know, elite, these singers, as well as our community singers. They all bring a different way of approaching our opera. You, you can't imagine how excited it is. And just one more thing, and then we should turn it over to Jennifer, but you know, even from watching the orchestra, if you think about it, this is very much modeled on what the cathedral project is, where you have young musicians who most of them still students, were sitting side by side with you know, musicians from the LA Opera Orchestra. And what you can learn as, you know, let's a violinist, you know, and let's just say you're a ninth grader or, you know, it, at the Colburn School. And to sit side by side with a, a professional who earns his or her living doing this thing that you hope to do in the future is very inspiring. And um, I was sitting at the back of the room for a rehearsal a little, you know, a few days back. And to see, and watching from the back, you know, you have a very different view, how these young musicians lean forward towards Nathan. And, and it's just like a physical, engage, like a, literally a physical engagement that is happening in their bodies. In terms of the scale of the project, how is this affecting your vision? <laughs> I wish there was more time. That um, it is an incredibly tight schedule for the epic storytelling and what we need. Because there are definite needs in terms of telling this story. It's a historical story. There are real people. My joke has been, it's not an opera that happens in a theoretical place like heaven or hell. So we can't get abstract about it. You know, we have real needs in terms of supporting what it needs to be. At least I'll speak to what the timeline is currently. We spent this past week, uh, assistant directors and stage managers and I, pre-blocking the show. So we've basically gone from top to bottom and staged the entire opera because we have almost exactly one week to teach everybody all of the staging. And that also includes them knowing all of the music to make sure that we are also giving time for them to learn the music. And in opera, which is different from, you know, theater where I'm coming from, that everyone maxes out at six hours of rehearsal a day. And also in terms of the community aspect of it, that we really have even less time with community members because uh, they're working all day and their availability is limited. And then also we have a third group of folks who are our community volunteers who we've been working with the past four Sundays, who will not be part of this next wave of rehearsals this next week. We'll see them again in about a week's time, rejoined on a Sunday and, and starting to put the pieces together. And then after that, we start teching the show. And that, in terms of that challenge, you know, it's a raw space. So we are basically building 
theatrical infrastructure in terms of set and lighting to be able to project images onto surfaces. And I'll talk about that because actually that's a pretty important aspect of the production. And to make sure that all of our folks can move through safely and that we have space for orchestra. And there are a lot of backstage, front of stage concerns and logistics that everyone's hammering out to the best of their ability. And then just to backtrack a little bit, projections are going to be used for this production, which uh, I don't know what what the production was 20 years ago. I've seen a couple images, but actually it probably... Lucky that I haven't seen any previous images or recordings of it because then I've been able to have freedom of putting together the storytelling. But we're using images from the Huntington's collections and Lisa's own um, private family collection and using them in the show to tell the story, not just of Fongsi. You know, we'll see Fongsi and Fongsi's family in terms of the physical storytelling that we're following. But we'll see on a macro level, as Lisa was saying, the story of the Chinese in America through the images that we'll see from the collections. Can I also just jump in in terms of the schedule? I just wanted to kind of let you know that there are going to be some musicians, student musicians, who are going to be jumping in, I believe, on the 24th, who I haven't had a chance to work with because their schedule has not allowed them to actually come to any of our previous rehearsals. So we are still adding musicians and it's it's growing by the day but it's so interesting because i have no idea in terms of their level what i want to assign in terms of whether they want to be violin or violin two so it's been quite challenging and just from a a humorous note i really have not had a chance to see what my students look like because they're all kind of behind a mask so when i say hi theo I'm not so sure what the full face looks like. (laughs) Hi, Emily. And going back to what uh, Lisa said in terms of her kind words about their sort of hanging on, you know, at the edge of the seats and, and listening to what I say, I think it's very, very important for a conductor to really bond with the orchestra. But in this day and age with the COVID protocol, you know, what we have to do, we are certainly abiding by it and taking all the correct measures to make sure that we are going to be healthy and safe, it really does sort of put a boundary between my wanting to express things and for them to be able to take it in by just looking at my eyes and not being able to see me smile. Because to tell you the truth, when I first heard the entire orchestra singing with the choir, I was grinning ear to ear, but they couldn't see it. It really was ear to ear. And I was Probably looking like the Joker, but not so creepy, you know. (laughs) But it was a big, big smile throughout the whole thing because I was able to hear the orchestra and also hear these wonderful voices for the very first time in this production. And that's just very, very heartwarming to me. I guess we should talk about the community opera aspect. The fact that this is, um, as Lisa said, you know, there's these professional players and like this was part of the libretto, it was part of the plan. But Lisa, I'd I'd love to know, like when you were writing the libretto, what it meant to think that this would be a community production. When Peter Hemmings, who back then was the artistic director of LA Opera, approached me, he had very much in mind this idea of taking opera out of the big opera house and out into the community. And 
that part of that idea of going into the community meant also bringing the community in. And so the way to achieve that was just as you said, to have professional singers, professional musicians, but also have sort of the secondary roles be played by young professionals, people who were just getting their start. And then as much as we could to include the community, even in smaller roles and certainly with the community chorus. But all of that wonderful sort of aspect of community and bringing the community together. I just want our listeners to know that like that means that there are schools, there are local organizations, there's, you know, other performing arts organizations that will be involved in this. And I know that that creates a challenge with scheduling and all of these other things. Please let me know if there's anything else you would like to add about the community aspect, which is so great. It'll be there in Pasadena. And so we're we're fo- focusing on organizations local to that area. But, you know, when you're talking about local in Los Angeles, it's the Los Angeles basin is our, our local area. Well, you know that uh, we did put out the word. LA Opera put out the word. You did a wonderful job. And Adam LeBeau, also with LA Opera Connects, did a wonderful job. We have students coming from Palos Verdes, coming from as far as Pacific Palisades. And we have some of our secondary role players. And I think maybe Lisa could could address what the secondary role players are. But we have those singers coming from North Hollywood, as far as Woodland Hills. Oh, and one of my students coming all the way from Chino on the other side, coming east to west. So this has really been gathering force. And I'm just so happy to see that the word has gotten out that something like this is happening. It's an opera for the community and we are accepting you know, talented students and singers. Also working with these talented singers and also our students, especially our students in high school, it really gives me a lot of satisfaction to know that I think we're in very good hands for the next generation in terms of musicians. Sometimes being in back of a computer and working by myself, composing, I lose perspective. I lose perspective about what's out there. And that's what's so wonderful for me as a composer is to be able to do something like this, go out into the community and to work with the students on a Sunday. I look so forward when we have our rehearsals at the Huntington because I know that I'm going to be able to get together with these high school students, listen to these wonderful singers. And it just takes me away from my own world in my recording studio and gets me out into the world. And I get to remember that the younger generation is just as talented, if not more than ours. And I think that we're in good hands. One thing I'd like to add about the community performers is that these aren't necessarily amateurs. Actually, the person who plays the lawyer in the opera is a lawyer in real life, but he's also a semi-professional opera singer. It's not like we just pull people out off the street. I just want, I want everyone to understand that, that these are people who uh, had to audition, that may have another life outside of music, maybe, you know, that they're, they're earning a real, uh, a living some other way, but that this is something that they have studied and worked towards for many, many years. I think that's a very good, very, very good point and a very important point that uh, we really are drawing from not only semi-professionals, but people who are very passionate about music and that they do have another career other than music. And it's so funny that we did cast a lawyer to play our lawyer. 
I, I, I get a chuckle out of that. I have one more question for you all, and it's it's really about the message of the opera. So is there anything you'd like to share in terms of the production? There's a lot that remains unknown, and that's sort of the nature of working in raw spaces. I've had quite a lot of experience with that through my own theater company that does a lot of site-responsive work and site-specific work. And um, so many things are abstract until they're not. <laughs> and so it's a, it is a little bit of hurry up and wait where you have to prepare for so many different scenarios because one of the givens is that there are a number of unknowns. So it will be very exciting to start to actually, you know, rehearse in the space um, that's quite different than, you know, even a cathedral show or a main stage show where you know what that's going to look like. You have an idea of what that feels like and what the shape of it is like. And while we know the general destination of where the performance will be, we actually won't know what it's going to look and feel like to perform there until all the elements have been installed. So that's an exciting aspect of specific site responsive work. As a director and as librettist and the composer, well, what is that like to know that like it, it might be slightly different than how you imagined it? Is that exciting or nerve wracking? Or we're just going to say it's part of the artistic process. <laughs> well, from a musical standpoint, I don't envy our sound designer because I know the challenges that he's going to be encountering. And just as what Jennifer was mentioning, we don't know until we actually get into that space. Luckily, our sound designer, uh, Jonathan Burke, has had vast experience of working in the outdoors. So I'll be interested to see how this actually plays out because there's so many, so many things that he has to be careful about and obviously knows about that I don't. I'm sure that he's already covered all that territory, but it's going to be, it's, it is a very, very challenging place. I know that. Wonderful. Thank you. The message of this opera, it's an important message. We're telling it now. And we're telling it as part of the Song of Los Angeles, which will be a um, five opera cycle. We started it this season with Carla Lucero's The Three Women of Jerusalem, um, Las Tres Mujeres de Jerusalén, at the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels. And we're very excited that Los Angeles Opera is presenting this opera cycle leading up to the Olympic Arts Festival of 2028. And so these various operas will be in different supervisorial districts in Los Angeles. This is one of these operas. And so it's it's meant to be representative of the community. It's meant to be representative of Los Angeles and our history. Why is this story important to be told? How was it different than when we told it before? And what would you like our audiences to come away with? As I mentioned before, America is built on immigrants. You know, we are a nation of immigrants. And it doesn't matter where you came from originally. We all share in that immigrant experience. The hardships, sometimes you know, for some groups, discrimination, racism. But within that, we're not only sharing in that immigrant experience, we're also sharing in the experience of being human. And that means we share in the same emotions. You know, we love, we hate, we jealous, all of those things. Those, those are those are universal. And we all uh, certainly long for love. And every great story is based on this, I, you know, a love story. Who doesn't love a love story? And sometimes what you have to overcome to be together 
when my great grandparents got married, and I have to use that very uh, euphemistically because it was against the law here in California for Chinese down to a quarter to marry in this state until 1948 against the law in 28 other states till 1967. So for them to get married, that was a big step and it meant overcoming a lot. I don't go back and look at my work. I, and I think, you know, hearing from Nathan earlier, it's not like we, you know, we've spent the last 20 years like listening to, to, to the music. But when we decided to do this again, of course, I pulled out the libretto and read it. And what struck me was how pertinent it is today that we, discrimination, racism, they, they never go away, but they do come in cycles. And over the last couple of years, we've seen this dramatic rise in anti-Asian uh, hate crimes, in discrimination. And what struck me when I opened the, it, I don't know why it happened to be to this page, but we do have a group of bullies. And the things that the bullies are saying are the same kinds of things you're hearing today. And so I feel that this is, that that aspect of the story, quite apart from the love story, quite apart from the immigration story, that to remind people about not just what happened in the past, but how the past actually has an influence on where we are today and that hopefully by looking at the past, you can sort of change not just the present, but hopefully the future as well. I don't think I can add anything more than what Lisa said in terms of the pertinence of this opera to today's society. And for me, this opera is trying to address how opera has changed or not changed or has evolved really to this point. And what I tried to do in this opera was really try to bring in all aspects of the music. First of all, we're talking about coming from China. So for me, I wanted to approach this opera from a Chinese standpoint. And it being set here also in Los Angeles meant that it definitely needed some Western influence. There's some beautiful Western influences that I brought into this opera from very melodic things like uh, Fongsi's aria, And also going back and forth, how Fengxi travels back to China, comes back to America and goes back. So we have a lot of music that's based on the Chinese pentatonic scale. So basically the five, the five notes. So I have our overture starting literally with just those five notes. Because, again, as I said, it's an integration of Fengxi coming to the West, it really should have some kind of hybrid between the two. So, as Lisa said, it's a love story. So I tried to create a love theme when they do sing.
goes back and forth, back and forth. And that's what I hope people will walk out after listening to the opera, after hearing what the story is, how Lisa's created this beautiful story and how Jennifer has created this beautiful portrait of this opera, that they also walk away with a sense of the music being very broad and expansive and being able to cover so much of the melodies that I'm hoping will be conducive to really good opera. That was beautiful. It's always uh, such a joy to hear those pieces. Jennifer, what do you want audiences to come away with? That's a really good question because, I mean, it overlaps in terms of the timeline with the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Chinese Massacre in Los Angeles, with photo documentation. And for those listening out there, the Chinese have been the only racial group that there has been legislation uh, passed, right, legal laws uh, that really excluded them from being able to enter into the United States and limited the population that was here. I know Lisa, as a historian, knows way more than me about it, so I'm just touching on like the macro points. And that photo IDs were first used in the United States by to help identify Chinese Americans or the Chinese who were allowed to be here. You know, there was a massacre in Los Angeles, which was the largest mass lynching that happened. 19 Chinese men were lynched at the same time. This happened while all of this is happening in the time span that Fangxi's story takes place. And while we don't really touch on that in the story, I am always reminded by the writer Hilton Alls, who said that the most psychologically damaging thing you can do to another human being is to not see them. And I feel like this story really sees Fang Si. <laughs> and that is really the only way that we can combat any kind of hatred. If you are faced with somebody's humanity and the different details of their lives, that they yearned for something, that they had ambition, that they loved people, how could you possibly reduce them to nothing and hate them? So I think for me, that's really what I'm paying attention to is being able to, as quickly as the opera goes in 90 minutes, spanning many, many years, not we don't have the full hundred years of Fangxi's life, but a good chunk of his life, that we are really finding all the specific moments of recognizing his humanity. I would just like to thank you. I am so excited to be able to see this, to be part of putting on this production and to know that this message is so important. The community is so important. We are honored again to partner with the Huntington and with all of these wonderful community groups and with all of you and to be able to put this on and it's just going to be a wonderful production and we're very much looking forward to it. See On Gold Mountain, May 5th through 15th, in the newly expanded Chinese Garden at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Tickets are available now only at the Huntington's website, Huntington.org. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.